Amen. We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to go to kids' church. We are beginning a new journey this week. We will begin walking through the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is one of those books in the New Testament uh, that if you are discouraged, if you are uh, suffering hardships or trials, uh, go to the book of Philippians. It is a book that is littered with passages that that speak of the joy of the Lord, that speak of thankfulness, that speak of, of encouragement. Uh, and so we will begin our journey this week walking through the book of Philippians. Last week we spent a good bit of time looking at some background and some contextual aspects that we need to be aware of. And so I'm going to touch on those very, very briefly this morning. Remind us that Philippi was the uh, first city in Europe, the first place in Europe where Paul planted a church, the first Christian church on the European continent was the church at Philippi. And Paul had no intention of going to Philippi to start a church. Paul was on his way to Bithynia. And the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us in Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit disallowed him to go to Bithynia. And so he ended up led by the Holy Spirit to Philippi. Ended up running into, by chance, a woman outside of the city holding a quasi-prayer meeting, a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, although probably not a Christian, probably not a Jew, uh, just simply someone whom the Holy Spirit had already begun working in her heart. Paul shows up, shares with her the gospel, she believes, and then she, Lydia then invites Paul, and, and there were four people on that journey, Paul, Paul's second missionary journey whenever this took place, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And so Lydia invites them all into her house on their way. They meet a slave woman. That slave woman uh, is, is a, a possessed by a demon. Paul, being annoyed by this woman, cast out the demon. She becomes converted in her, to faith in Christ. She then uh, reports back to her, uh, her owners. At that point, they become uh, furious with Paul and Silas and all of those who had uh, participated in casting out the demon. They have them beaten, thrown into prison. While they're in prison, the Holy Spirit uh, begins to fall upon that place. Paul and Silas are singing in midnight. They're, they're praising God. They're singing hymns. And all of the jail cells are open. And then the jailer runs in and is about to kill himself. And before he kills himself, Paul says, don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything crazy. Nobody has left their cells. And, and Paul then begins to share with them the gospel. The jailer is converted and the Philippian church is born with the conversion of Lydia, the slave woman, and the Philippian jailer. Paul spends a little bit of time there and then they move on. The book of Philippians is a very interesting book. It is an occasional book. It was book. It is an epistle, a letter, that Paul wrote for a specific occasion. And we're going to look at that here this morning and as we move forward. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your great grace, for your mercy, which is new to us every day. And we pray that as your word is taught here this morning, that it would not be the words of a preacher, but it would be the words of your Holy Spirit that we hear. But we pray that you would convict us of our disobedience, you'd convict us of our complacency, you would convict us of our lack of faith. Lord, and you may spur us on to godliness. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I pray that when you leave today, that you will be keenly aware of God's grace in your life, and you will in turn have a heart of thankfulness. Paul begins this letter, and he begins this letter uniquely. Paul's written over 13 epistles in the New Testament. Paul is responsible for, not by volume, but by book, over half of the New Testament. Paul writes 13 epistles in the New Testament. Of those 13, there are only two of those books that begin the way Philippians does. Philippians and the book of Romans. If you look, Paul says, Paul and Timothy... Bond servants of Jesus Christ. What is absent is Paul acknowledging and reminding his audience of his apostleship. Remember, Paul was not an apostle like, like Peter and Matthew and James. Paul was an apostle out of season. It wasn't until the road to Damascus that Paul was converted whenever he was on a road to Damascus to persecute, receiving an, uh, an endorsement from uh, from the high priest and an endorsement from the Roman governor that he was continuing to persecute the church. And on his way to Damascus, he was intercepted by the Holy Spirit. He was intercepted by Jesus himself. And there was a bright light that shone And Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul fell to the ground and he said, Lord, Lord, why? As Paul fell to the ground, he said, Lord, Lord, who are you? And the Lord Jesus said, it is I, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Paul fell at his feet and worshiped. And at that moment, Paul was converted. And so then Paul then went and was discipled by the Holy Spirit for a period of time. And so Paul was an apostle called out of season. And so in many of his letters, in the majority of his letters, Paul reminds the hearer, reminds his audience of his apostleship. Paul, an apostle of the Lord and bondservant of the Lord. Paul, an apostle and servant. Paul, an apostle and slave. That, that's how Paul begins most of his letters. However, Philippians, he doesn't. There is no mention of apostleship as he introduces himself. Why not? Well, first of all, remember we went, as we looked at the church at Philippi, there was no synagogue in the church at Philippi. There was no synagogue in the city. Why not? Well, you had to have at least 10 Jewish families, at least 10 heads of a household in order for, uh, in order for there to be a synagogue there. Well, there wasn't. Lydia was meeting outside of the city gates with a collection of women. And so the fact is, is that there probably was not a prominent Jewish population in Philippi. And so because there wasn't a prominent Jewish population in Philippi, there would have been, there would have been no need for Paul to reinforce his apostleship and his relationship to Jesus and the other apostles because he was the one who planted the church. Paul was the one who had all of the authority in Philippi. 
Paul was the one who had led Lydia to Christ. Paul was the one who had led the slave woman to Christ. Paul was the one who had led the Philippian jailer and all of his household to Christ. And so the leaders of the church were direct disciples of Paul. And so he already had authority. He already had the, all of the endorsement from the leadership of the local church. So he doesn't need to, to reinforce and remind them of his apostleship in Christ. Because they know of his apostleship in Christ because they were direct recipients of his evangelism and his discipleship. Paul also begins the book of Philippians mentioning Timothy, which is interesting, which is unique. Why mention Timothy? Well, if we remember, there were four people on that first missionary journey to Macedonia. Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. And so Timothy was there. Timothy was there as the church was birthed. Timothy was probably hand in hand with Paul as he was discipling, as he was evangelizing, as he was planting that church. There was a, there was a unique affection for the church at Philippi that, that Paul wanted to communicate to them. I also want to remind us of the circumstances surrounding Paul writing this letter. Paul writes this letter from prison. This is probably his first imprisonment in the city of Rome. And so Paul in his imprisonment is writing this letter. And he says, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul use the term bondservant? Paul identifies he and Timothy as a slave. Now, it's important for us to understand that this is not a a Hebraic, a Hebrew understanding of the term servant, but a Greco-Roman understanding of the word servant. In the Old Testament, we will see Moses referenced as servant of the Lord. And that is a title of high honor or high esteem. All throughout the Old Testament, we'll hear Moses, we'll hear uh, many of the high priests, we'll even hear David, some of the kings, being referenced as a servant of the Lord. And that, in a, in a Hebraic mindset, in a Jewish mindset, was a term of honor. But remember the audience to which he's writing. He is not writing to a Jewish audience. He is writing to a Greco-Roman audience. And so this is not a term of honor that Paul is identifying. He's not saying Paul and Timothy, servant of the Lord, like Moses and David and Abraham. No. He is writing to a Greco-Roman audience that whenever they would have heard the Hebrew word, I'm sorry, the Greek word doulos, which is slave or servant, they would have heard someone who has been captured, someone who is, who is, remember the Greco-Roman world, the Greek under Alexander the Great had conquered all of civilization from as far, as far west as, as Great Britain to as far east as the Himalayan mountains, as far south as North Africa to the Scandinavian countries. All of that was under Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great conquered all of the civilized world. And when they conquered an area, guess what they did to the inhabitants? They made them slaves. And then when the Romans took over, guess what they did? They conquered everything. And when they conquered, what did they do with the people that were living there? They said, hey, I know you've been living here. I know we just walked in and destroyed your town and your city and burnt everything. But won't you come live and work right beside us and we'll be, we'll be neighbors. No. They made them slaves. And when you became a slave, 
When you became a slave, you had no rights. You had no privileges. You had no personal ambitions. You had no interest. All of that was repressed because you were serving your master. And the only ambition and the only interest that you could have were those that were that were in the best interest of your master. And so as long as your personal ambitions were to plant his uh, to plant his fields and harvest his grain and to, to, to clean his house and to serve his food, as long as that was your personal ambition, then great. Otherwise, we don't care. And so that is the Greco-Roman understanding of the word servant. And so as Paul introduces himself to, to the church at Philippi as a servant of the Lord, what he is saying is my interests, my ambitions, my freedom is all in sub subservient to my master, the Lord. And he will reinforce this with Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Later on in the passage, he says this. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, More than I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, all of my ambitions, all of my hopes, all of my dreams that I once had, all of my possessions, all of my education, all of my training, everything that I once had is now considered rubbish in light of, in light of service to my new master. This is that idea of, of servanthood that the Greco-Roman world would have been very aware of. And so as Paul introduces himself and Timothy, he does so in light of his servanthood to Jesus, to a new king, a new master, a master that is good and kind and loving and benevolent. The service and the subservience to the master doesn't change. What changes is the master. The master is not wicked. The master is not selfish. The master is not evil. The master is good, kind, loving, desires godliness, desires blessings, desires righteousness in his servants. Paul introduces himself and then he says this, to all of the saints... Who are in Philippi. His audience is the church. And as he introduces himself and as he talks to his audience, he reminds them of their status in the church. That you are no longer slaves, you are no longer jailers, you are no longer business owners. You are saints, holy ones. The word saint literally means holy ones. Those called apart, those set apart. He says, to all of those who are called, all of those who are holy, all of those who are set apart, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ and I am writing you a letter and this letter is to all of those who have been set apart. And so church, we need to understand that our 
status, our identity is those who are called apart, those who are holy, those who are set apart. As we are in Christ, as we are part of the church, part of the big C church, we are set apart that God has a purpose and a plan for us. And that purpose and a plan is not simply to go to work and make a paycheck and feed our family. Our purpose is something larger that we have an eternal purpose. And and Paul was reminding his audience of that as he called them saints, as he called them holy ones. That yes, you may be living as slaves. Yes, you may be living uh, as as a, a mason worker. You may be living as a farmer. You may be living as a servant. But as you are in Christ, you are called apart. You are holy. You are different. And then there's a distinction. He says, and to the overseers and deacons. And this is very unique. There's only this is the only letter who Paul as he's introducing his audience, he singles out the overseers and deacons in addition to the audience. In addition to the the, the church at large. And I believe the reason is is because this is an occasional letter. Why did Paul write this letter? Cuz Paul's in prison. And the church at Philippi knew of Paul's circumstances, knew of the difficulty and hardships in Paul's life, and they sent him a gift. Now, whenever we as a church gather together, and and there are oftentimes whenever we will uh, hear of a need, maybe a need in a missionary, maybe a need in a uh, a particular church. In fact, over the last a few months we've been working with Riverbend Baptist Mission, understanding that, you know what, that they still haven't recovered from the flood. And so we've been gathering together and we've been meeting as a, as a church and we said, you know what, we're going to send, we're going to send resources and people and we're going to go over there and help it and, and help that church rebuild. Well, in order for that to happen, somebody's got to organize this, right? Somebody's got to go over there and meet with the church at Riverbend. Somebody's got to see what needs there are. Somebody's got to come back to the church and say, look, they need sheetrock hung. They need uh, sheetrock floated. They need be painted. They need the floors redone. And then you communicate it to the church. And so Paul is writing as an occasion to thank the church. Well, who was it that communicated to the church that there was a need? Well, it was the overseers, the leaders in the church, and the deacons, those who were set apart to serve the church, they came to the church at Philippi and they said, hey, remember that guy Paul who came over here and planted this church and converted Lydia and converted the slave woman and converted the Philippian jailer and all of his household? Remember that guy? Well, he is at the church in Jerusalem and they're going on a missionary journey and they need some money. And so we need to gather all that, all the resources that we have and we need to send them a blessing. And that's what took place. We read these passages and, and, and we want to look at this and we want to overcomplicate things and just understand what it is. This guy that was in need, a group of people in the church got together and said, hey, let's send them some money. And so that's what they did. And so Paul's writing them a thank you letter. He's writing them to thank them. He's writing them to encourage them and to encourage their faith. So Paul writes not only to the church at, at large, but to the leaders. And he says, thank you. Verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, a Hebrew welcome, or a Hebrew greeting would simply be peace to you. Shalom, which means, I hope you're doing well. But Paul doesn't say simply peace to you. He says, grace and peace to you. 
Because Paul understood that the only way that there is peace with you is through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about, and I know the answer is yes, but I really want to ask, have you really thought about the grace of God that is demonstrated in your life? And I believe for some of you, you have. But I believe for most of us, you're like me. And you say, yeah, 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 yeah. God's been gracious to me. This is a picture of my pantry. My wife has no idea this is coming up. And so she is cringing. This is a picture of my pantry. I called Nicholas this morning. I said, Nicholas, I said, take a picture of my pantry and send it to me. And, and if you look, it's, it's, it's messy. There's pots all at the bottom. But what you'll notice is we haven't been to the grocery store in about a week. And if, if we didn't go to the grocery store for probably three weeks, we wouldn't starve. There's enough food in there, whether it's, whether it's plain rice or whether it's cornmeal or whether it's flour or we'll figure something out. We won't starve. But we don't have to rely upon this because within three mile radius of my home, there's about 15 grocery stores and convenience stores and restaurants. Good gracious how many restaurants there are. Do you realize that this is a modern phenomenon? A hundred years ago, there were no grocery stores. Two hundred years ago, the only way you survived was you raised your own food, you slaughtered your own animals. We live in the most abundant, wealthy world, wealthy country in the entire world. Many of us drove here in a vehicle that is much nicer than the one that I'm about to put up here. But many of us have driven cars like this. How many of you ever drove a car like this? A piece of junk. Maybe it cranked sometimes, maybe it didn't. It's got, it's got three or four you know, tones of paint on it. You know, the, a fender's been replaced, or maybe the fender wasn't there at all. You know, it, the, the, the windows may have rolled up or down, or maybe they didn't. The air conditioner may have worked, maybe it didn't. Most of us drove vehicles like this. And the reality is, is that you walk out to our parking lot, and this is the exception, not the rule. And, and I would venture to say that we are not an extremely wealthy congregation. We're very average. But most of us don't drive vehicles like this. Because we are the recipients of God's grace. Common grace. You don't even have to be a Christian to be the recipient of God's common grace. How many people do you know that drive around in vehicles much nicer than this? Go to another country as I was in India... As I was in India, I was driving down the, well, road is a very, use that in the loosest sense of the term. It's, it, it's, it's an alley, and there are BMWs, and Mercedes, and buses, and camels, and donkeys pulling carts, and oxen pulling carts, all on the same road. And that's a, a India is not a third world anymore. 
most of us experience the common grace of God in a way that we don't even we don't even wrap our brains around it. Most of us live in a home. Now your home may not be extremely extravagant. It may not be nice. It, it may look like this. And if your home looks like this, you are still living and dwelling better than 99% of the world's population. And if your home looks like this, then you are living and dwelling more than 99.9% of the population. But every one of us, without exception in this room here today, are blessed by God's grace. Do you realize that we have access to penicillin? Do you realize that we have access to modern technologies before you would get... Not even a hundred years ago, you would get an infection and they would cut you to bleed out the infection. And maybe you survived and maybe you didn't. A few hundred years ago, the bubonic plague wiped out one third of the world's population. The modern conveniences and technologies that we have access to is only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And I think so oftentimes in our lives, we fail to acknowledge the common grace that God gives us. Family, friends, the fact that we gather together on a Sunday afternoon after church service and can go eat at a restaurant and can gather on our holidays with our family and our friends and love and laugh and enjoy one another is a gift of God's common grace. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is a gift from God. Everything. The fact that we're healthy, the fact that we're sitting in this building with electricity and, and all of the blessings that we enjoy, that we take for granted is a gift of God's grace. Now I want to ask you to consider God's peculiar grace. Not the common grace that everybody gets, but the peculiar grace. I believe that as Paul is writing to the church at Philippi in verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace to you. I believe that he is remembering the peculiar grace. The peculiar grace that led Paul not to Bithynia, but led Paul to Philippi. The peculiar grace that led Paul outside of the city gates and he wound up with a bunch of women. He met a woman named Lydia who made and sold purple dye. He had a conversation with her, letter to the Lord Jesus. The peculiar grace that allowed this slave woman to drive Paul crazy, to annoy her to the point that he cast out the demon and called her and, and, and was able to share with her the gospel and she was converted unto faith. And the peculiar grace that had Paul thrown in prison. Paul was thankful for being thrown in prison. He was thankful for being beaten. Why? Because he had an eternal perspective. Because as he was thrown in prison, and as he was beaten, and they began to, they began to praise the Lord, they began to sing hymns, the jail cell was open, and he had an opportunity to, to share the gospel with the, with the jailer, and the jailer, and all of his household gets saved. Have you thought, have you thanked God for the peculiar grace? Have you thanked God 
for the hardships and the trial in your, in your life that brought you to salvation? What about Joseph? Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph ends up at Potiphar's house. He's lied upon. He's framed. He's thrown into prison. Spends an inordinate amount of time in prison only to be left there, forgotten. But then he interprets a dream for the Pharaoh. He's called out to serve in Pharaoh's court. And by the grace of God, anoints him as the second in command to the king of Egypt, the most powerful country, the most powerful civilization in the world at that time. And through Joseph, through his hardships, through his trials, through his, him being sold into slavery, him being imprisoned, all of the difficulty, Joseph is in a position to not only save his family, but all of Israel from famine. Have you thanked God for the peculiar grace? God, I thank you. For the loss of my loved one. I thank you for the trial, the hardship, the difficulty. Because it has brought me into a collision course with your grace. I believe that as Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he says grace and peace to you. That he is remembering the peculiar grace that led him to plant the church at Philippi. Why do I believe that? Because verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Paul's eternal perspective allowed him to have a heart of thankfulness. He realized that the souls of men are more important than anything else. Paul was a wealthy man. Paul was an educated man. And Paul understood that it was no chance encounter with Lydia. That it was no chance encounter with the slave woman. That there was no chance encounter that the doors of the prison were were flown open, were flung open, and the jailer was converted. Paul realized that all of that was by the providential hand of God. And so here's the question I have of you. This morning, as you contemplate the circumstances of your life, I want to ask you first and foremost to contemplate the common grace that you have. Whether you drive an old beater or whether you drive a Lexus, whether you live in a shack or whether you live in a mansion, whether you have a pantry that is full or whether you have a pantry that is empty, regardless of your circumstances, you have received an extraordinary amount of grace. And this flies in the face of this entitlement generation and this entitlement society that, that, that we live in that, that, that tells us that you deserve health care and you deserve the right to vote and you deserve this and you deserve that. That's hogwash. We deserve nothing. Nothing. We live better than 99% of the entire known world and we still believe that we're entitled to more. How arrogant and prideful. 
I want to call you to remember the common grace that you've been given. We have children and grandchildren. We have our health. We have friends and loved ones and family and a home and vehicles and bank accounts and and food. We've been given, and all of that is just because God loves us and is gracious to us. And it's not an exceptional grace, it's common grace. But then, I want to call you this morning to remember the peculiar grace that God in His great grace led you to a vacation Bible school when you were seven. That God in His great grace led you to a youth group whenever you were in your teenage years. That God, by His peculiar grace, allowed you through addiction to come to faith. That God, through His peculiar grace, placed you in a loving home who would teach you the Word of God at a young age, that God, through His peculiar grace, would allow you to fall in love with a Baptist girl who would drag you to church where you would hear the Gospel, that God, by His peculiar grace, would begin to work in a way that was completely unbeknownst to you so that He may draw you to Himself for no other reason than because He loves you and He has a purpose and a plan for you. This morning, I want to ask you, have you been thankful? When was the last time you got on your face and just thanked God that He has saved you? That He has bought you with His precious blood? When was the last time you got on your face and cried out to God and praised Him and thanked Him because of His peculiar grace? When was the last time you've been so thankful that it is that it has exuded, that it has overflown out of you so that you cannot help but speak about what you've seen and heard? And the world looks at you and says, there's something different about you. And you say, you know what? You're absolutely right. Not only have I received common grace, not only am I, have I been blessed to be born in the, in the most wealthy nation in the world and I have more than I could possibly deserve, but God in His peculiar grace has sent me and has made me realize that I am in desperate need of a Savior and that He, by His grace and His mercy, has revealed to me that that Savior came down in the person of Jesus and He's shed His red, rich, royal blood blood on a rugged Roman cross that I might not die for my sin but that I might have eternity with him and God has revealed that to my heart and I by by no in by no righteousness of my own I place all of my faith and trust in what Jesus has done and that has changed my entire life you're right I am so blessed I believe that in most of our lives Mine included. I get so caught up in what isn't going right. My aches, my pains, my ailments, my frustration. When I read Paul, who's in a prison, he's been beaten, shipwrecked, left for dead, imprisoned. Multiple times. And he's writing to the church that was born in a city 
where he was beaten and thrown in prison and says, I thank my God for you. Do you thank God? Are you aware of the common grace and peculiar grace in your life? Let's pray. God, what a wonderful sound as we hear that baby babbling. And we're reminded of your common grace. We're reminded that regardless of how much we deserve, you have blessed us all. You have given us loved ones. You have given us children. You have given us health. You have given us resources. You've given us finances. God, you have blessed us beyond what we could possibly ask. But even that, if that weren't enough, you have blessed us and given us peculiar grace because you have saved us. There's someone here this morning. They can praise God and thank God for his common grace. But this morning, for the very first time, you've realized that God sent Jesus to die for you. And he is calling you this morning to praise him for his peculiar grace. Maybe this morning, you can't thank God for the time when he saved you because you've never you've never trusted Jesus if that's you I want to invite you to come in just a few moments as we sing a a hymn of invitation I want to invite you to come and trust Jesus for your salvation and today may today be the day that you can thank God for his peculiar grace in your life maybe this morning God is calling you to come to this altar and just praise him and thank him for His grace in your life. Maybe He's calling you to grab someone next to you and pray with them. Maybe He's calling you to be the grace of God to someone else. As we hear from the Lord this morning, may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and may you cause us to be obedient Lord we pray for your Holy Spirit to have his freedom in this place this morning we ask all this in Jesus name